0: Our sermon series, Hope in a Shaken World, continues. Now, I'm going to change it, okay? So we're going to have to be changing anywhere that we have it. Because the more I thought about it was that my hope isn't based on the world, and it kind of sounds like that. Instead of what I'm going to change it to is really a simple change. Hope in the midst of a shaken world. Okay? and as you some of you know it's very rare for Kay to not have my sermon inserts for the bulletin by Thursday morning very rare uh, that's the, usually the very latest sometimes even much sooner I've, I've had everything completed and ready for her on Mondays I am not a last minute person when it comes to my messages uh, and I thought I knew exactly where I was headed this morning. And then our world was shaken once more. The events that have basically continued since Wednesday have caused me to once again realize that we are living in a world of uncertainty. As Jesus said, Satan is the ruler of this world. We sometimes miss that. Sometimes our bad theology has caused us to overlook that fact. Satan's the ruler of this world and that's why it's a very dark world. And that's why we are sent to be light in this dark world. So let me tell you what happened on Wednesday. I threw my sermon outline in the garbage can. It just wasn't filling the need that I thought we might have today. Last Sunday, as you might recall, I shared with you an article written by Julie Beck that appeared in a periodical called The Atlantic. And her article was titled, How Uncertainty Fuels Anxiety. And in that article, she revealed just how much we fight against uncertainty every day as a part of who we are. It's our nature to prefer for certainty over uncertainty, even if it involves pain. I want you to hear once more what she found as a part of her research. Here's what she says. As a rule, humans prefer certainty to uncertainty. Studies have shown that people would rather definitely get an electric shock now than maybe be shocked later. And they show greater uh, nervous system activation when they have to wait for the unpredictable shot or the unexpected, unpredictable, unpleasant stimulus rather than the expected one. Where people differ, she says, is in the degree to which the uncertainty bothers them. But it bothers all. Now, Mark, as we get to that point where I can get on that schedule and get some work done on my teeth I promise you if you're there that day you're going to see somebody that is cracking jokes and nervous and and it's not because of the pain because I'm going to ask him before he starts are you going to be on the nerve and if he says no I'm, I'm going to tell him don't give me the anesthetic because I, I can deal with the pain as long as it's acute pain for a short amount of time but That precipitory anxiety over what is unknown. It affects us all. Now, I've been doing a lot of reading since Wednesday. And I'll admit up front that I've had and read far too many Facebook posts. And that only increased my own despair and disillusionment and anger at times to the point that I made the decision yesterday that I am going to get rid of Facebook. I'm leaving it active until tomorrow morning, uh, but I am no longer going to have Facebook and probably no social media as a part of my life. Significant people who are close to me have already sent me private messages and giving me their phone numbers and emails so that we can stay in contact. But I'm, I'm tired. I'm tired of reading all the vitriolic, hateful. I mean, I even posted a post one day here this week about the need for us to get rid of the hate and to try to to accept each other even when we disagree. And all it did is people in my post started attacking people who responded in my post. But I've also spent some time listening to some good pastors. Pastors. One of those is a young man that I've known since he was a young teenager, Gene Apple, the son of Leon Apple, minister of a large congregation in California. I've listened to them talk about how they're trying to lead their congregations through the uncertainty of the COVID-19 pandemic. And those podcasts that I listened to were recorded before the political turmoil of the election and the chaos, before all of the misinformation, before all of those hateful attacks that have even divided families and put Christians at odds with each other. In a message titled, Holy Uncertainty, I love that title, John Mark Comer gave me a new handle for understanding what's taking place. He said that uncertainty results when we face a situation that combines fear, grief, and confusion. And it's accompanied by the presence of dread. Now think about that for a minute. He agreed with the results of Beck's research, stating that we humans have a very low tolerance for uncertainty. And his answer to why, he said, and I agree with him, he said that it's a part of our nature. One of our strong desires is to be able to know what lies ahead, to be able to plan. We want to be in control. Last night we were talking about large families and, and the conversation came up about reunions and one of my cousins uh, was posting about how you know she was looking forward to seeing us again at the reunion if we could even have it. That uncertainty, that inability to plan. And yet what we don't realize because we want to be in control, what we don't realize is that studies have shown that we actually only have about 15% of the control that we think we have. And sometimes we feel out of control. Well, we only have 15% of the control that we think we have. He also pointed out that not only do each of us react differently, but that the reactions range from mild grief to actual trauma. I I would dare say, I would predict that, and I don't know this, I haven't asked, but I would dare predict that some of the patients who are coming into the hospital emergency rooms are coming in because of anxiety attacks and they're not really sure what's going on and it has to do with all of the uncertainty and the trauma that's going on. And he said... That when we what we do when we, we move toward trauma from mild grief, we move toward trauma as the time of the crisis lengthens, and or the intensity increases. Time and intensity, two important factors. Now listen to me. Think about it. I mean, you're reasonable people, knowledgeable people. We've been fighting the pandemic now for, what, ten months. Now, add to that all of the issues of the election, which have added to this uncertainty now for at least two months minimum, the diagnosis of our situation has to be that of trauma. And a major symptom that's now being expressed by many people is the feeling of powerlessness. I don't know how many people have said to me things like, I just don't know what to do. I don't know who to believe. I feel like I have no control over my life. And, and this is where I go back to a question that John Mark Comer asked. He asked, is there another way to deal with the uncertainty of life besides grasping for control? And I want you to know that I found certainty in our text for today. I found some answers. I found something of which I could grab hold. And that's what John speaks of as the word of life. And interestingly, that is the title I gave to to Kay weeks ago forever realizing the depth of the struggle, just how all the uncertainty would even shake our little world once more again. So let's go to those verses in John's letter. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon and touched with our hands concerning the word of life. The life was made manifest and we've seen it and testified to it and proclaimed to you the eternal life which was with the Father and was made manifest to us. That which we have seen and heard, we proclaim also to you so that you too may have fellowship with us and indeed our fellowship is with the Father and with His Son, Jesus Christ. And we're writing these things So that our joy may be complete. May God add His blessing to our reading of His Word. John begins his letter by pointing to a place where certainty can be found. We find certainty not when we grasp control but when we yield control of our lives in service and obedience. And we yield it. Look again at how he begins. We yield it in terms of those first words and affirmation that we have a place to ground our hope that existed long before these problems ever began, before any of the instigators of the problem in our day or in John's day were even born. John begins his letter by pointing to the life that appeared in his day, but that was actually from the beginning. Now, those of you that are Bible readers, do you hear the beginning of John's Gospel in the beginning of his letter? The Gospel begins like this. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God, and all things, all things were made through Him, and without Him there is nothing that was made. In Him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. That's the first four verses of the Gospel. What was from the beginning? The Word. The Word that was with God and was God. The starting point for any certainty that you and I are going to be able to have, that you and I are going to be able to have, any certainty that we might be able to have in this life comes from the Son. That's why our motto for this year is in 2021, our hopes based on the sun. Not from the political process. Not from our jobs. Not even from the advice of people that we know and respect. One of the reasons why I am saying goodbye to Facebook is that there are people that I have respected who are administrators in our Bible colleges and and theologians who have joined in on some of the hatred and and used casuistry to allow them to make actions that I just don't see in keeping with who they are. Our hope needs to be based totally on the Son of God. And in our text for today, in the beginning of this letter, John tells us that this expression, that which was from the beginning, it functions as one of a series of relative clauses that are all describing the word of life. And that's what this passage, as it unfolds, makes quite clear, refers to the word of life incarnate, in Christ. When John describes the word of life as that which is from the beginning, echoing what he wrote in the prologue of the Gospel, the beginning opening paragraph of the Gospel, he provided us with the certainty we need to know, to know that we have a reason to feel security and not fear, to find security in Jesus Christ. The very one whom John speaks of in his Gospel as being with God in the beginning, before the foundation of the world. And notice once again the reference to eternal life. It was eternal life which was with the Father. Again, we have to see in this an allusion to the teaching found in, in the Gospel. And the word is described as the one who was with God, and in the context, it doesn't just mean physically present, it means being in the closest relationships of all. Eternal life. Now, I don't know what you think about when you hear the words eternal life, but I want to give you a corrective. If you think of eternal life as something that is a quantity of life, Life that just goes on and on and on and on. No! Every time the eternal life is spoken of in Scripture, it's spoken of in terms of quality of life. Quality, not quantity. And quality because of the source. The source for any certainty has to be, and it has to start, with a relationship a relationship with Christ and with the Father. In fact, in our text for today that we read, the eternal life that we proclaim actually is functioning as a a synonym for uh, the word of life. It's a reference to the life, the word of life being the Son of God. Because it's in Jesus that we have abundant life. It's in Jesus that eternal life is found. Which we're going to see when we move on to uh, 1 John chapter 5 somewhere down the road. Verses 11 and 12. It was the eternal life which was with God from the beginning. Which the author says, John says, has appeared to us in Jesus Christ. Now... I started by the who because our certainty is found not in things but in a person. But I want to stress how John was able to feel so confident about that because a lot of what he says in these first verses are based on his personal experience. It leads us to talk about who Jesus was from that experience of John. John the Apostle. John, one of the inner circle of three. Peter, James, and John. Yeah, I know there were 12 disciples, but think of how often the Scriptures talk about Peter, James, and John being with Jesus when the others weren't. On the Mount of Transfiguration. Who did He take up on the mountain? Peter, James, and John. What were Peter, James, and John able to see? They were able to see Moses and Elijah standing there with Jesus. Now think about that. Moses representative of the law Elijah representative of the prophets and Jesus and Peter gets all excited and says oh Lord we need to build three tabernacles but the the light and the cloud disappear and Moses and Elijah disappear and the voice from heaven says this is my beloved son listen to him listen to him That's not to say that the Law and the Prophets aren't important, but our focus, our certainty needs to be found in Jesus Christ. John, who was present with the raising of Jairus' daughter from the dead. He took Peter, James, and John in there. John, who was present in the Garden of Gethsemane, when Jesus took Peter, James, and John just a little bit further from the rest to pray. In Can I I say this? In an hour of uncertainty? I mean, hey, Jesus is praying earnestly, if there's any other way, Father. But not until He said, but if not, Thy will be done, that then an angel came and ministered to Him and Satan departed who was lurking. (coughs) John. John who's described as the disciple whom Jesus loved. You see, John knew. And he wants us to know how he knew. How he could be so certain. Because his life had certainly been shaken. Jesus had been crucified and John knew that too. He was there. When the other disciples were far off and hiding. John was there at the foot of the cross with Jesus' mother Mary. And remember what Jesus said? John, behold your mother. Mary, behold your son. Jesus was the oldest child. He had to make sure that they were taken care of. She was taken care of. And we're told from other historical references that John did in fact fact, take care of Mary in Ephesus right up until she died. John knew. John was one of the first disciples to witness. In fact, he even won the foot race with Peter as they went to observe the empty tomb the women were reporting about. So John gives us these four relative clauses. The Eternal, that which was from the beginning, had entered time and had appeared to human beings. The Word had become flesh and thus presented him to people's three higher senses hearing, sight, and touch. And in fact, John's choice, the order in which he proceeds, as Westcott says in his commentary, is from the most abstract to the most material aspect of divine revelation. He begins by saying, we have heard. But that wasn't enough. Because people had heard God's voice in the Old Testament. It's sometimes suggested by those who deny the authorship uh, to John the Apostle that this doesn't imply first hand hearing of Jesus preaching by John, but it only applies to hearing the message of Jesus handed down by others. The problem with that is the immediate context of the expression is that this first verse makes it clear that it was an actual first hand hearing of the proclamation of Jesus that's implied. What was heard is associated with what was seen with our eyes and touched with our hands. Expressions that imply first-hand experience. Also, this is in line with what we'll look at next Sunday, verse 5, when John speaks of the message that we heard from Him, meaning from Jesus. Second, John says that the word of life is described as which we have seen with our eyes. Now, that expression is a bit unusual since this is the only time it's found in the New Testament. It's used to reinforce the claim that the proclamation of the word of life comes from one who's an eyewitness. We saw it with our eyes. And to have seen was more compelling than just to have heard. But notice that John makes an additional note. The word of life is described as that which we looked upon. We we didn't just see it, we looked upon it. This is a word that's used 22 times in the New Testament, always denoting physical sight, but also including the idea of something that we studied. We didn't just see, we really looked at it closely. I don't mean to single you out, Rich, but I was seeing those pictures of that car that you're looking at, working on, rebuilding that Volvo, red Volvo. And when you look at the first pictures of it, it looks like it's got a little bit of a problem. That's when you see it. But when Rich started examining it more closely. He ended up having to cut out a whole section of that rear quarter panel and make new metal and replace it and do a whole lot of work, far more than you would think if you just looked and saw it. Right? That's the difference. But there's also another very important difference. We have heard and we have seen with our eyes, in the Greek, are the perfect tense. Which means we heard them and we saw them and they had a lasting presence in our lives. A lasting effect. But then when he says we looked upon and we touched with our hands, those two phrases use what's called the aorist tense in the Greek language. Now, let me help you just a second with a grammar lesson on the perfect tense and the aorist tense. The perfect tense is something that happened back here in time but continues okay the aorist tense is something that happens at a point in time mathematics students line graphs the perfect tense is a segment the aorist tense is a dot on the timeline okay So what John is saying here when he says, we looked upon, we touched with our hands, is that there was a time in history, a point in time, when we actually had that physical presence of touching and seeing. And I personally think that it very well might be a post-resurrection time when they were there with Jesus and they were talking with Jesus. I mean, didn't Jesus say to Thomas, here's my hands? Here's my side. On the shore, in the end of John, when he, when he is talking to Peter and he says, Peter, do you love me? What were they doing? Man, they were together joyfully celebrating and eating a great meal of fish for breakfast. Now, I know some of you are saying fish for breakfast. But Mark was sharing yesterday how their group that went fishing man, would have fish for breakfast, and it's pretty good stuff. Something that could be examined closely. In fact, by the way, that word touched and that word looked upon, that word looked upon is often used in extant ancient literature when it refers to blind people who are looking and observing and getting to know something. How do they do it? By touching, by feeling. One of the tuners of pianos down in Louisville, Kentucky, Marshall was just a tremendous guy. Man, he could play that piano, couldn't see a thing. He'd go over and sit down at that piano, and I'd say, Marshall, I want to sing a song Sunday. Do you know it? And I'd tell him, he'd say, no. And I'd say, well, here's how it goes. And I would sing the verse and the chorus through one time. And he would say, do that again. And I'd sing it, and he'd start picking here, picking there. He'd say, okay, let's try it one more time. And he'd play it perfectly along with me as I sang it. Never heard it before. Never obviously saw sheep music. But what did he do? He used those senses that had been made stronger because of his lack of sight. And I think that's a part of this image of what John is saying when he says, we looked upon it. And we touched it with our hands. Don't tell me Jesus isn't real. And don't tell me that He didn't really resurrect from the dead. You see, in this time of uncertainty, one of the things that I fall back on more than anything else is that my Lord and Savior could not be held down by death and therefore I don't need to be afraid of death in fact there are many things that are worse than death and that phrase that he was made manifest it's repeated twice what have I said to you about things that are repeated in scripture if it's repeated it must be important We need to take no. It was revealed. It was made manifest from where? From God. God revealed Himself. And that's why it's so important that we understand that we are not reaching out to God as much as God reached out to us and loved us. And we can have certainty because of what God has done from what He said. That's why I'm encouraging you to take one of these green folders and be a people of the book this year. Let's read through God's Word together. And if you have questions, by all means, let's get together and talk about it. Because there might be something I've overlooked and I'm wrong about. And you can help me correct my thinking. Because I believe that from Genesis 1-1 to Revelation 22, verses 20 and 21, God has given us reasons for being certain in the midst of a shaken world. And my prayer is the prayer that the Bible ends with. Come, Lord Jesus. So where do we go from here? Where should we focus our lives? How should we use our God-given energy in this very dark world in which we live? A world that is shaken. A world that is fraught with uncertainty. Are you familiar with the the phrase liminal space? I love it. In architecture, liminal space is uh, the word that's used for the concourse of a mall where you've come in from outside and you're in this concourse area, but you're not inside the store. It's an area of transition. But sometimes it's also an area of uncertainty and an area of fear. I mean, luminal space also refers to the feelings that we have, uh, the feelings of being abandoned, for example, when we're in a shopping mall at 4 a.m. or we're in the school hallway in the summer. That feeling that we're almost, we almost feel frozen and unsettled. It's also used to describe the ambiguity, the disorientation that occurs in the middle stage of a rite of passage. When people no longer hold on to that which has been a part of their reality and status, but at the same time, they're not really ready to accept they haven't yet begun uh, the transition to where it be where it appears that they're being channeled or funneled or headed, where they're being pushed. They're standing at the threshold between previous ways of structuring their identity, their time, their community, and a new way that doesn't really seem appealing or worthy, so they haven't ventured in. And this is where I, I believe that Comer's phrase, holy uncertainty, can really help us. It's like the wilderness for ancient Israel. A lot of uncertainty during that time period. And they knew where they were headed, the promised land. But what what could have been an 11-day journey? I mean, when you read Genesis and Exodus, look into this. What could have been an 11-day journey turned into at least a two-year journey at first. Because God said, no, I'm not going to let you go that way. I'm going to let you go this other way because we got some lessons to learn. And then because they weren't ready to make the transition out of the liminal space into the promised land, it became a 40-year experience. What about the wilderness temptation experience for Jesus? He had just been baptized. He had just heard the voice from heaven, this is my beloved Son in whom I'm well pleased. And then the Spirit drives him into the wilderness to be tempted before he begins his ministry. Or even the uncertainty of the Garden of Gethsemane that I talked about. You see, my my hope and my desire is that during this time of uncertainty, you and I can become stronger. And let me suggest two very important opportunities. The first is I think we need to ground ourselves in God's Word and God's promises. Let's be a people of God's book and not get caught up in all the hype of Facebook. Let's be a people who are uh, trying to find ways that we can reach out and communicate God's love even in the time of isolation and quarantine and all the else that's going on. I'm going to be on the phone first thing tomorrow with the company that handles our church webpage. And I'm going to find out if there is a way and how hard it will be to get things set up so that we can stream our services right from our church webpage, as well as the weekly everyday devotions I do, instead of stream, stream, streaming them live on Facebook exclusively. Now, I'm going to continue... To stream the services on Facebook as a ministry and as a witness, we're not going to get rid of our church Facebook page so that we can make announcements, we can get news out, we can uh, push positive things. But uh, and and we've made available this booklet of First through Third John, our daily Bible reading. Let's be a people of the book ground ourselves in God's word and God's promises but then secondly and this one I'm speaking to myself as much or more than I'm speaking to you to be honest this is where I stepped on my own toes on Thursday Friday and yesterday let's be people who can start moving from despair and uncertainty to the security and love that we can know that's right. John uses the words we know more than once, at least three times. And he uses the word know even more than that. Let's live in gratitude to God for all that he, we know that He's given us. The knowledge that He loves us. That we are important regardless of what the world may say let's live one day at a time because in the Sermon on the Mount didn't Jesus say sufficient for the day is its own trouble I got I to deal with the trouble today because tomorrow is going to have its own trouble I need to take care of where I'm at in other words Each day has enough junk of its own to occupy our time and our energy. Let's focus on moving in the direction of the positive. Let's pray.